Well, it's good to be back with y'all, and uh, just briefly though, because n- next two weeks we'll be gone. Uh, next week is the congregational meeting, followed by the World Prayer Focus. Congregational meeting is at six o'clock, and then the uh, World Prayer, uh, the the World. World Prayer Focus uh, is it meets at 5:30, so there will be activities on those the next two Sundays, just not this service. Yeah, <laughs> um, I, I want you to imagine for me, uh, if you will, that you go into a restaurant. Uh, and it's a nicer restaurant. You get uh, dressed up, bring somebody special, and uh, you're starting to really anticipate the good food that you're going to have. Uh, you know, you've you put aside a little money to, in order to to make it out that night. So it's special. You order things that you normally wouldn't. You get a little a special thing, and uh, as you see your waiter finally approaching, he's starting with the the first course of soup, and as he's walking to your table, you just see his head snap back and he lets out a full-blown sneeze right into your dish. Uh, And then he continues walking towards your table and sets it down in front of you. What would your response be to that action? Um, Most of you would not reach for the spoon at that point. But it would be something effective. This is unacceptable. This isn't isn't right. And the the waiter says, well, why? I saw you sneeze in it. And he says, well, look, it's still mostly soup. (laughs) You know, there's probably only 2% or less is sneeze in that soup. Now, you you wouldn't accept that argument, would you? Uh, because you want your soup to be sneeze-free. You want it to be pure from any defilement coming from the sinus regions of that person. I I, I bring this up because there's a way in which we almost uh, demand more purity of our soups than ourselves. Because, of course, with the soup, we think, you know, it doesn't take much to defile it. But when we're thinking of our own personal righteousness, we use a different equation. We say, well, if the good outweighs the bad, then that's what makes it all right. But that's not an ancient or a biblical way of thinking. And the biblical way of thinking is what defiles me, what makes me impure. And if I'm impure, how do I get right with God? How do I get the sneeze out of my own personal soup bowl? The, the, the reason why I bring that up is the passage that we'll be looking at today is going to be talking about and dealing with purity. And I think that often we think, am I good enough? We don't think, how am I made pure before God? And that's largely the question we're going to be dealing with as we read together today and look at God's Word. This is a passage we've we've covered once. As I said, we'll, we'll be looking at it a little different angle, a little different lens, mainly in relation to purity this week. Titus chapter 1, we're going to be reading verses 10 through the end of the chapter. Hear now the word of the Lord from the book of Titus, chapter 1. 
beginning in verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, for they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful game what they ought not to teach. One of them, a Cretan, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see what you would show us in your word and ears to hear what your word has to say to us. We pray, Lord, that the same Holy Spirit who inspired these words to be written would be working in our hearts to accomplish your purposes for your glory. In the beautiful and precious name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. So as we said here, we have a passage that's starting to deal with this idea of how are we made pure before God. And there's a false view that is being combated in this passage that... uh, we get a couple hints at throughout the passage. As, as it goes through, we can kind of form an opinion, form a view of uh, what it is exactly, who the group is, and what they believe that Paul's opposing. The first clue comes to us in verse 10, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Now, this was likely referring to a group of Jewish believers who were saying that in order to be right from God, you have to follow the Old Testament laws and statutes. That is, those who are Gentiles have to act like they're Jewish and get circumcised in order to be right with God. He, he, he goes on and, and talks a little bit later about uh, rebuking people, uh, rebuking Cretans who are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. He says later on, it, he, he says that he wants them to be sound in faith and not devote themselves to Jewish myths. Now, several weeks ago when we covered this passage, one of the things we mentioned is that there are elements within culture that are opposed to the gospel. And, and the, those from Crete had, uh, within their culture, tendencies towards lying, t- tendencies toward, toward acting animalistic, tendencies to be lazy and indulgent that were opposed to the purposes of the gospel. But one of the things we, we have to deal with, in, in not only in Crete, I mean, I know it's nice as Americans, we, we, we don't have to deal with people being liars, we don't have to be, deal with people acting like beasts or being lazy or gluttonous. Those aren't American problems, are they? Um, 
<laughs> Northern. Oh, yeah. Well, us down, yeah. Us down, down south, we don't ever have to deal with gluttony. We're right in the middle of it. If you ever look at a heart attack map of the United States, you know what's right in the center of it? Memphis is right in the center. There's all this red, and its, epi, it's epicenter is Memphis. I think that's why they put so many hospitals here in Memphis. Um, So there's these forces within the culture that are working against the gospel, but one of the things they also have to do is outside forces are working against the gospel. So these uh, believers in Crete come to know the Lord Jesus, and they have to deal with all their own personal baggage of their own culture that's opposed to the gospel, and now they also have to deal with outside influences that are opposing to the gospel. And I don't know if you know this, but as new believers, oftentimes when you're just trying to learn everything in in the basics of Christianity, you're very open to false views. You you haven't been taught or formed. You don't yet have the discernment or the understanding to know what a false view of God and a true view of God is. So here there's there's these people and and they're sneaking in, they're they're beginning to propagate a, a false gospel. This, by the way, was seen when the Soviet Union opened up. Uh, in in the early 90s, uh, the, the Soviet Union kind of collapsed and, and opened up and for the first time was really open to a lot more Western influence. As a result of that, a lot of missionaries, a lot of people who had been working and desiring to get it, rushed into the country. And because the, the predominant theme of communism was state-enforced, Atheism, people were hungry. They were hungry for knowledge of God. They were, they were hungry and eager to know about spiritual things because they'd been deprived of it so long. But do you know what rushed in along with the gospel? All sorts of cults. All sorts of false religions. All these things rushed in together. You can imagine the same thing happening as the early church is spreading. The early church is spreading, but there are other religious groups and beliefs that are spreading their views. Here is one that's infecting the church in Crete. It says it's upsetting whole families. And we have the clue of uh, calling them a circumcision party. We have the clue of saying devoting themselves to Jewish myths. And then in verse 15, we have this clue concerning purity. It says, to the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Now this passage is oftentimes described as kind of, you know, if you've got a dirty mind, everything's dirty. But if you're innocent, uh, you, you don't. everything you see is innocent. But I don't think that's exactly what it's talking about. It's not talking about the purity or impurity of a dirty mind. It's talking about purity or impurity in terms of how do you become right before God. And that's what this text is dealing with. And there have been people who have infected the church and, and started upsetting families that are saying, the way that you become pure before God is following the rituals of the Old Testament. And you gotta get circumcised like, like they did back then. And you have to follow all these Jewish rules and, and regulations. This was a, opposed to the gospel. One of the shocking things as you read Acts is the real, the church coming to realize and coming to grips with the fact that both Jew and Gentile in Jesus Christ have direct access to God. And that was shocking to them. 
And ever since that point, there, there's been a pull back to say, ah, it's not directly through Jesus Christ. It's through Jesus Christ plus this that you have access to God. It's Jesus Christ and. Beware of that and. It's a very dangerous thing. This uh, is one of the devil's primary means to separate us from the grace of Jesus Christ and His shed blood alone is by diluting it by adding other things to it. It's interesting, throughout the book of Titus, uh, we, ha- we have this tension you know, there's this licentiousness, yet at the same time, uh, there's a, a, a description of grace and good works. Titus really is, is trying to communicate a, a whole lot about licentiousness, about legalism, about works, about grace. How do all these things relate to one another? And it's important for us as, as believers to come to a proper understanding of the relation of those things. I want to give you some definitions that I believe are are pertinent to the text. Uh, Two two are going to be of ways we get off and away from a proper understanding of grace. Uh, By the way, if you're traveling on the road of faith, the devil doesn't care if you go off the road to the left or to the right. Uh, and in fact, there's going to be a way that I'm going to argue that you can fall off both sides at once. Uh, one of the first ways he tries to get us off course is, is through licentiousness. Uh, another old, old-timey old name for this is antinomianism. Uh, antinomianism means against the law. Uh, and it, it's simply a, a way of thinking um, that says, because grace saves me, my works don't matter. That's licentiousness. Grace has saved me, therefore I can, I can do what I want. He, he's, he's gonna redeem me. Uh, works don't matter, uh, because I've already been saved. That's already been paid for. Therefore, it doesn't really matter what I do. Okay, so that's licentiousness. Uh, another w- way of thinking, a false way of thinking, is legalism. And legalism says, my works matter. Because they earn salvation, because they merit grace. Now, it's tricky because this view doesn't always say, they don't always deny the grace of Christ, but they can add it on. It's the grace of Christ plus this. That's what gets you in. You know, it's adding on to the finished work of Christ. Now, grace is a little bit different. And this, I think, is central to understanding the argument of Titus. We'll get really deep into it as we get into the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. But Titus argues that the grace that saves me matters because it equips me for good works. Now, I want us to look at, at these three concepts. I'll, I'll repeat that again. It's important to get the grace that saves me matters because it equips me for good works. Now, my, that's a very in, interesting view, and, and Titus argues for it uh, heavily in Titus 2, 12. It says uh, in verse 11 to start out with, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, and training us 
to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So our works matter, not because they earn anything, but because they are a product of grace. Now, I want us to think a little bit of these three concepts in relationship to purity. Licentiousness says purity doesn't matter. Jesus Christ paid the price, therefore we got it covered. Legalism says purity matters. Therefore, you have to follow these rituals. You have to follow these works. You have to do these certain things in order to be made pure before God. In order that you might be acceptable in His sight. As a matter, as a way to strain the sneeze out of your soup. The, the way of grace says Christ has saved you from your impurity that you might be pure. Purity is gained and maintained through Jesus Christ and His grace. And it should be valuable to us because Christ spilled His blood for it. Now, I want to give you an example. You know, their example was circumcision. Uh, I was talking to somebody once, and, and they said, he said he, he visited a church once, and uh, they, they were also, they were still saying that the way to be right with God is you got to be circumcised. I thought, gosh, we've dealt with this. Are they not reading Acts? Are they not reading the, the epistles? Uh, but I, I want to give you one. Uh, that maybe hits a little more at home to try and elaborate on this principle a little bit uh, is the idea of baptism. To try and understand this relationship of between grace and works. One of the things I, w- I would say, and I'm going to say a couple things that are going to seem contradictory. The first thing I'll say is if you haven't been baptized, I would question whether or not you believe. I would question whether or not you are saved. If you haven't been baptized, I would question whether or not you'd say, okay, that's one statement. The other statement is, if I do not believe baptism saves you. Okay, so how do you reconcile those two ideas? Well, first of all, saying that I would doubt your salvation if you are not baptized is this understanding that the grace that saves us is intended to make us more and more like Christ. It's intended to have us be followers of Christ. And if you haven't yet taken one of the most first and basic steps in following Him and His commands of being baptized, I would question whether you have a heart that has been transformed and softened towards Him. Now at the same time I can say, I don't think you're saved by baptism. In fact, I think there are also many who are baptized who are unsaved. There there are many who approach baptism and think, well, if I do this, that'll save me. That'll grant me God's grace. That'll earn from God what I need to be made right with Him. That's what the legalist, that's how the legalist approaches baptism. Grace recognized that Christ paid the penalty on the cross. That He did for me what I cannot do for myself. But because He has called me and made me His own, because He has made me a a new creation, I desire to follow Him. I want to follow Him. I long for it. 
I long to become what He has called me to be. There always should be a relationship between who God is and what He has done and who we are, and therefore how we live. But it always needs to come from the top down. We must always remember, it is God who has acted on our behalf. It is God who has saved us. It is God who has redeemed us by His might and by His grace. By the way, grace is unmerited favor. You can't earn grace by the very definition of the word. Another thing that's really interesting, I've been studying this word, trying to get to know it a little better. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but grace always comes from the superior to the inferior. Grace always comes from the empowered to the unempowered. And and that's partially by necessity. If you could do it for yourself, you wouldn't need the grace. If you could accomplish it through your own power, you would have. But you can't. That's why we have to receive it as a gift, not through any power, not through any merit, not through any deserts of our own. One of the things that Scripture constantly reminds us of is the spiritual impotence of man in the face of a pure and holy God. We don't have the power to undo our sinfulness. One of the things I I think of is that the God who made us and formed us, who gave us life and breath and everything, what do we owe to Him? Life and breath and everything. Now that means if, if I make one mistake in my life, If I get into a deficit at at one point, I can't pay him back with any other action because I owe him that other time, that other effort already. It's taking a loan out to pay off your debts. It doesn't get you further out of debt. In fact, it gets you deeper in. Because in that moment, I should have been giving to him that I was paying back the previous actions for. I owe him that too now. One of the things legalism does and one of the things that's affecting the church in Crete here is a belief that through your own effort, through your own ability, through your own working, through your own conniving, you can do these rituals and these things and these outward actions are going to purify you. What's that believing? That's believing that our action can create in us a new identity. I can go from being impure to pure unacceptable to acceptable to God. And therefore, God has to accept me. You can't work your way up the ladder. You can only go down. That is, God has to act in grace to save me and make me a new creation. And out of a new heart that He has worked within me, outpours a life of faith, hope, and love in obedience to Him. Spurgeon, who's a master of imagery, says, Man can no more save himself than he can climb to the moon made on a rope made of sand. I think that's a, that's a, that's a great, and that's a great analogy. But here we have the lie in the early church and the lie in, in Texas as well, that it's through our own efforts we can merit, we can earn anything before God. Such an idea underestimates our sinfulness. It underestimates God's holiness. 
And it underestimates his wrath towards unrighteousness. One of the things we we see in, in this passage too is that it takes a work of God for us to be able to do anything worthwhile towards God. Notice notice the passage. He says, To the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure. But their minds and their consciences are defiled. That, That means if God purifies you, if He does a transforming work on the inside of you, then guess what? Everything you do out of that heart is pure and acceptable before Him. But if you have not been purified by Him, if you're trying to work your own salvation out, or if you're trying to work for your own salvation, rather, then but you're still in a corrupted state of mind. You've not been saved by Him. You've not been purified by Him. All your efforts... Or for not. They're just producing more and more of the corruption that's already in you. It says they profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They, they propose to know the God of all grace, or the God of all mercy, but they deny Him by their works. Why? How? Because their works show that they don't know God. They think they can earn something from God. They think they have some sort of leverage on Him. That they can manipulate him to meet their own needs. By the way, this is the essence of idolatry. The reason why people would sacrifice goats and calves and animals and money and children before false gods is because they believed in a God that they could negotiate with. That they could get some form of leverage on. That they, if they did enough things for this God, He would be obliged to respond to them. By the way, uh, J.I. Packer's book, which Bernie mentioned, has a, a passage where he talks about this tendency in our modern lives. He says a lot of us have been influenced by the book, uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And, and part of the basic premise of that book is uh, that you're so nice and charming towards people that whenever you ask something of them, uh, they'll be obliged to say yes, to, because to be no would be really r- kind of rude and obtuse considering how kind and sweet you are to them. Now, we don't know anything about that in Southern culture, of course. But he says this idea can be particularly dangerous if we apply it to God. And think, well, if I'm sweet enough, if I'm kind enough, if I attend church enough, if I do enough good things, if I volunteer enough time in the nursery, God's going to owe me a little. Then if I pray for this, He's going to have to say yes. It's a dangerous tendency that sneaks in to our lives. This legalism that comes from a corrupt heart. The licentiousness that comes from an indulgent heart. Cause us to avoid the true nature of grace. Cause us to fail to understand how good God is to us. How gracious He is to us. Yet how sovereign and supreme He is. 
He will not be manipulated. We aren't able to twist his arm to obey us, no matter how kind we are. He says by ending that these people who follow, follow this form of false teaching are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. One of the great ironies of these passages, these people think they're purifying themselves before God. Yet really they're growing in impurity. These, these people think that they're obeying and doing good works. But in reality, because of the corruption of their heart, they're growing detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. One of the things we must recognize as we come to the God of Scripture is that He must be accepted on His own terms. The good news is that those terms are incredibly gracious to us. That He offers His grace and love and mercy through His own power and His own sovereignty, not based on our deserving it but despite of our deserving it. He purifies us and makes us a people for His own possession to declare the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. He does these things not so that, not because He is indebted to us, but because He finds glory in taking the weak and meek things of the world and showing His strength and wisdom and power through them, that His grace and His glory might be manifest. Saints, I hope you are living in light of the grace of God and that that grace is empowering you to set aside wickedness and evil and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, not for our own glory, but for His own glory and to the praise of His name until Christ returns again to establish His kingdom, His rule on earth. May you be found faithful and fruitful to that task. Amen. Our benediction is simple and comes from the beginning of Titus. It offers us the two things that we receive freely from God. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Amen.